Hello and welcome to Talk of Today, where we explore developments in science, technology, and society, and what they could mean for the future. I'm your host, Sam Barton. So before I get into introducing the topic and my guest for today, I'd just like to talk about sponsorship. I'm not 100% sure how I feel about advertising, but what I do know is that it annoys me. So I'm not going to subject you to it. I know your attention is precious. That being said, I will talk a little bit about what I'm working on. So I'm currently working a few days a week to support myself, but I would love to work on Talk of Today and a few other things full time. So if you'd like to become a supporter of the podcast, head to patreon.com slash talk of today and become my patron. Patreon is an awesome organization that allows creators to make a living from their work through subscription payments from their fans. For as little as $1 a month, you could support the podcast and get access to bonus content and rewards. And it'll actually allow me to buy a pop filter so you can stop hearing that pop, 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 pop. I need to sort that out, don't I? <laughs> just kidding. That's next to my to buy list. But uh, yeah, go check it out. So just one more thing before I get into it. Uh, I don't know about you, but I love the idea of getting shit done. I've downloaded plenty of to-do list apps and I've bought diaries and productivity planners to try and make myself more productive, but I've never stuck with any of them. And you know, the best to-do list is the one that you actually use. So what I've come up with is a Chrome extension that causes my daily plan to pop up every time I open up a new tab. I probably open up hundreds of tabs a day. So having my to-do list pop up every time I open up a new tab has worked wonders for my productivity, as I see what I have to do that day instead of going straight to Facebook or Reddit, and possibly losing hours of my life scrolling through who knows what. So the features include a to-do list for the day, a space to write what I'm grateful for because expressing gratitude daily has been shown to increase overall happiness, a space to take notes, a thought-provoking quote of the day, Uh, a universal task list so I can just get whatever I need to do uh, that's in my head onto some list that I can allocate to a day later. And finally, a place for tracking. So as the saying goes, what gets measured gets managed. So there's a section of the page that is dedicated to tracking things that I think are important, like sleep, exercise, whether or not I meditated, and all that fun stuff. The end goal is to be able to run some analytics on my life and see what causes me to be more productive or whatever. An easy example would be to see how my sleep correlates with my daily productivity score or coffee consumption. Down the track, you'll be able to track whatever you want, but right now uh, you'll be you're only limited to the uh, the stock items on the list. So if you're interested in this kind of stuff, or if you just want to be more productive, check it out. I'd love some feedback, and it's free. I've got a number of my friends using it, and uh, they've actually seemed to be using it and enjoying it, which is great. Um, at the time of this podcast released, it's actually not available on the Chrome store. Uh, right now, it's Sunday, the 16th of April, but it will be available later on this week. I'm not going to lie, it is a little bit buggy, and there are a few cosmetic issues, but all in all, it gets the job done, and that is what is most important. I just want to get it in the hands of a bunch of people and get some feedback and see where we can go from there. Links to it will be in the show notes, so go and check it out, and it'll be on the website as well. Um, there's all There will also be links on my uh, Instagram. Um, I'm at shbarton, so check that out at Check that out as well. (laughs) So anyway, on to the show. Today, we are talking about the Earth Charter. 
The Earth Charter is an international declaration of fundamental values and principles for building a just, sustainable, and peaceful global society in the 21st century. It seeks to inspire in all peoples a sense of global interdependence and shared responsibility for the well-being of the human family, the greater community of life, and future generations. The idea for the Earth Charter originated in 1987, when the United Nations World Commission on Environment and Development called for a new charter to guide the transition to sustainable development. Championed by Maurice Strong and Mikhail Gorbachev, the Earth Charter took shape over the course of a decade after worldwide cross-cultural dialogue on common goals and shared values. The Earth Charter was finalised and then launched as a People's Charter on the 29th of June in the year 2000 by the Earth Charter Commission, an independent international entity. The document has been endorsed by over 6,000 organisations, including many governments and international corporations. The Charter begins with this inspiring message. We stand at a critical moment in Earth's history, a time when humanity must choose its future. As the world becomes increasingly interdependent and fragile, the future at once holds great peril and great promise. To move forward, we must recognize that in the midst of a magnificent diversity of cultures and life forms, we are one human family and one Earth community with a common destiny. We must join together to bring forth a sustainable global society founded on respect for nature, universal human rights, economic justice, and a culture of peace. Towards this end, it is imperative that we, the peoples of Earth, declare our responsibility to one another, to the greater community of life, and to future generations. It's quite inspiring, isn't it? There is a growing realization in the world that the current nation-state model we exist in is incompatible with the needs of the 21st century. We live in a globalized world, but we still exist as seemingly independent, sovereign states who put national interests first. This is not only hindering our collective development, but also limits our ability to deal with global issues like global warming, pandemics, the refugee crisis, deforestation, and the threat of nuclear war. The Earth Charter is foundational to a concept for global citizenship, which you might have heard me mention on this podcast in the past. Basically, I want us to create a digital country that can bring everyone on Earth up to a level playing field and be used as a mechanism to advocate for global interests and to deliver access to basic needs and human rights. Countries can be created and destroyed with the flick of a pen. They only really exist in our minds. However, the suffering going on in the world because of these invisible divides we call borders is very real. I see this citizenship as an opt-in and incremental way to bring the world together, bringing everyone onto a level playing field through the recognition of the bond of our humanity and the earth that we all share. It could be the beginning of the next chapter of humanity, the final stage in our coalescence. If this idea resonates with you, or if you'd like to find out more, head to www.globalcitizenship.today. The concept is a work in progress, and we don't have all of the answers, but I think this idea is important enough to spread because we can crowdsource this solution. We can create the future we want to live in. Today I am joined by Clem Campbell, who is the current chair of Earth Charter Australia. Clem is a former Australian state politician and was a member of the Parliament of Queensland from 1983 to 1998. 
In 2013, Clem Campbell became the president of the United Nations Association of Australia in Queensland. In 2014, Mr. Campbell was awarded the Order of Australia Medal for his contributions to the community as an outstanding advocate for peace and environmental education and leadership in promoting ethics in public life. It was a privilege to speak to Clem out at the beautiful Griffith University Eco Center. It was fitting to speak about the Earth Charter while enjoying the tranquility of the surrounding bushland. His passion and hope is palpable and infectious. In our conversation, we speak of the Earth Charter, the importance of community, and the prevailing issues of vested interests. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Clem Campbell. My name is Clem Campbell. I'm now the past president of the United Nations Association, but one of the roles I play is with the um, committee we have called the Earth Charter Committee, and I've been involved with the Earth Charter Committee now for over 10 years. And this is basically a declaration that came out of the unfinished business of the original Rio Earth Summit. Um, so since then, um, it was decided that we needed, that we needed a, um, a declaration of the relationship of humanity with the earth. And so this is the third great charter that's believed that is needed to have a peaceful, sustainable, global society. Mikhail Gorbachev described it this way. He said to have this peaceful global society, we need strong pillars to under uh, to underpin, you know, on which we build our, our global family. And he said the first charter is the Charter of the United Nations because that defines the relationship of state and state. The second great charter is the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that defines the relationship of the state with the individual. The third charter, the Earth Charter, that was has been missing has been the relationship of humanity with the Earth. And so it describes the principles how we should live in a peaceful, sustainable global society. So what's the story behind uh, you getting involved in the Earth Charter? Like what has brought you up to this point? Well, I'm an agricultural scientist by profession, so I've always believed in sustainability. When I was working out in the country Queensland in the 70s, as an agricultural scientist and economist, we didn't talk about sustainability. We talked about optimising long-term production, not maximising, but optimising long-term production. So in reality, this is what sustainability is. Um, so every now and then a new um, jingle or comes along that we, that we can use. Um, so from there, I got involved in public life and especially uh, public ethics, in other words, um, ensuring that we have accountability and responsibility within public life. And the Earth Charter came from that to provide the basis of, of having a sustainable society and the principles for that, that in reality has to be led by our uh, political leaders, by the governments of our nations. And that's how it came back to the United Nations. The United Nations and the members of countries, got to remember, it's the countries, our governments are basically representing us. They've got to decide to bring in those policies that bring forward a peaceful and sustainable global society. 
So you were um, back in the days uh, a, a politician. Can you talk about your experience uh, working within government and uh, the the great things about it? Perhaps some of the issues you, you might have faced in in progress. Yeah. Look, for many politicians, there are there are great frustrations because you can't really implement the policies that you feel are best for for your society for for your community. And it's, and I think it's got harder and harder for for our um, leaders and our and, and, and our and their politicians. And I believe it's come down to the excessive, the the excessive um, control, could I say, or influence of vested interests. And the vested interests are really coming from uh, groups like industry groups, such as um, the representative for the coal industry. And representatives of, of, of professional groups. So that you will see that, uh, in certain, um, tax, uh, policies, uh, your accountants and these groups will not want changes because they need these to keep their industry going. Um, the car industry has been a very interesting one, how we've had so many, um, subsidies to keep people to be able to have cars. We've had for fossil fuels. Those industries have had great influence, excessive influence, so that they can keep their favoured situation, their subsidies right, and their benefits. So coming back to the, the Earth Charter, what how did it come to be and what is the story behind it? I know you mentioned um, it had its beginnings in, the, uh, in Rio. Um, was there a spark that... Um, brought this to light? It, it, it was that um, before the Rio Earth, original Rio Earth Summit, that was basically you know, you know, 20 years ago now, um, this aspect of sustainable development started to, to, to become, can I say, popular, that we had to look at um, people appreciating that we have a finite world, we have finite resources, and we've got to start living in harmony with our world, with our ecosystems and biosphere. And from that, they said, hey, we just can't keep on continuing having growth and, uh, and consumption uh, without having some limits. And it comes back to an aspect that in, in economics especially, um, kind of spirituality, has been forgotten. Um, and this is an important part, and it's come down that the Earth Charter says, in essence, human development is being more, not having more. Our whole economic systems is about having more. This is about being more. In other words, being able to um, be happy without having to keep on consuming. And I think you'll find that there are now many studies that have shown that above a certain income level, you're not going to be more happy. I think that the cutoff point or the point at which it tapers off is at about, you know, I could be wrong, but it's around $80,000 a year or 70, 60 or 80000 if you're an Australian or an American, which isn't that much. No. It's not that much. And I think that might be a bit out of date mm -hmm. on the basis of now because of home affordability. Mm. That um, basically 70 or $80,000 a year could not 
you could not beat the repayments for a normal home. Uh, and, and it's changed. Um, the economic goals that I understood when I was doing economics in the 70s was uh, stability and security, efficiency and equity. Now, stability and security are two criteria that you seldom hear that are a part of um, human nature. And these are things that I believe we have forgotten, that now it's all about jobs and economic growth, where I would say the importance for people, more important of that, is security and stability. And what I'm talking about there, basically, when you look at it, is peace. Because where you have conflict and war, your economy and everything else goes out the back door. You can't look after your environment, like in Syria, or those other areas where there's conflict, um, because um, you can't farm, you can't do it. And this is, in essence, that the reality of a good economy is based on peace. Whereas what we measure in, in, in our present day is basically often um, tools of war. Or just how much, or just GDP, you know, how much wealth, I say wealth with quotation marks. Um. But, but under GDP does not measure happiness, right? Um, in, in actual fact, you would find that if we have a cyclone or something come through and wipes out a lot of our homes, right, you would find out that the GDP would go up because you've got to rebuild it. So you've got extra act, um, economic activity, but we've got actually less happy people because we've got less people in homes. Until we rebuild those old homes, can we say that we're back to the same level of happiness? Yeah, it seems like the... Um the metrics for success that we measure, you know, well, our success as humanity currently are, you know, GDP and it's probably, uh, I think the World Economic Forum has said that, and a lot of people have echoed this sentiment, that it's outdated and we need to reimagine how we measure our success as a, a species. But the vested interests of industry are not going to allow change. And, and, and there are a lot of um, economists caught up in that um, because they know it is a to my measure, to my understanding, a failed measure of what I regard as uh, human behaviour. It can't, it won't be changed until those vested interests will allow it to change to really measure, as in some countries, they're actually measuring happiness, not economic activity. I'm pretty sure a couple of years ago, even the Venezuelans were among the happiest countries in the world. I think this was before the Civil War. Or civil unrest uh, and the rampant inflation, but I'm pretty sure it was them who were the uh, the happiest. So, and you know, they're by far not the uh, not the most economically. Well, one of the greenest. Um, recently, I went to um, the United Nations University for Peace in Costa Rica. Now, Costa Rica has a very high level of uh, human happiness. Um, not only that, they're probably one of the worlds that is actually basically just about self-sustaining in, in terms of um, energy and things like that. Um, they have a very green um, economy, I suppose you call it, environment. But I'm, even, I'm concerned now for Costa Rica because in, in 1947-48, they actually... Um, had a constitutional change to say there could not be an army because they kept on having civil wars and uh, 
coups and things like that. So all the money that would normally be spent on an army, guess what they spent it on? Education and health. So now they have a very well-educated, healthy um, population and guess what? The Americans now wanted to come down and take advantage of that. That there are many now um, of those international companies that are now setting up in Costa Rica because they have a good, inexpensive, intelligent, um, healthy workforce. Would you say that community is fundamental to happiness in or for for a, a country's happiness or you know a community like a, a sense of community uh between individuals do you think that's it's it's the essence that keeps a community together and it's something that we do not measure and we undervalue for example um we can talk about our cultural capital our social capital Right. Our sporting capital, our intrinsic capital in our um, environment, our volunteer capital, never measured in reality, or if they are measured, they're not, they're not really valued. Now, all those things are part of the community. Mm. And I think it starts, uh, in the old days, it started over the back fence. Um, well, most people don't have a back fence now. It's yeah. usually a, um, a wall between units. Um, uh, but those things that you'd have um, neighbours, uh, streets that would be able to work together. But we do have a very strong community and what it actually keeps our, our country going and peaceful. You know, having uh, choral societies, choirs, bands, all those are what part of making a community and it's very important. Not only that we acknowledge it, but I believe we should measure it and value it, something we don't do at present. Mm, I agree. I agree. I, I've, I've been thinking that with the rise of, uh, I would say, atheism and people who are less religious, I think a lot of people uh, in today's day and age, they have less community. And I feel like a lot of people feel a sense of longing or there's a bit of a hole there that I think community might be able to fill Um and, and it's done with organisations like I'm um, with, like the United Nations um, Association, that is civil society um, support group for the United Nations, that actually values peace and security, and is trying to keep uh, our our government as a member of the United Nations um, accountable to that. Um, you know, it's important that, that they stay accountable to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. You know, um, that they acknowledge that they have signed international agreements um, regarding asylum seekers and refugees. And they are some of the responsibilities that they get in return for so many things that we take for granted. For example... If you want to fly safely from one country to the next, right, you've got to have um, different regulations uh, so that you can travel safely. That's not done by Boeing or something like that. Matter of fact, it's not done by one country. It's done by the um, Civil Aviation Authority that's based in Canada that makes the rules and regulations to be able to fly safely. If you want to post a letter from one 
uh, country to another, there is an international postal union that describes the rules and regulations to make certain it gets there. Maritime services makes the laws and regulations that for trade, ships come in and out of countries. So there are a lot of things, even technology, uh, the internet. The rules and regulations are made by the International Telecommunications Authority, not by Google. So you understand that, to, that there are many things that we take for granted for being part of an international global society that is set up by the United Nations that we take for granted. When you have international standard organisations, that's the body that sets them up. Rules and regulations for manufacturing of cars. All those are bodies that come under the umbrella of the United Nations. And it's very important that we acknowledge that and support it. Because we don't want all those regulations made by the strongest. It could be America. Or next year or the year after the strongest country will be China. So will they make all the rules? Or perhaps in a couple of years later it could be Russia. No, we want to be able to, as a global society, make these rules and regulations that are best for all of us. Yeah, global interests instead of national interests. Yes, yes. And that's why we've got to be supportive of the United Nations. And when we look at it, it's a club, an organisation of countries. It's the members that make. If, if the United Nations is not working properly, you go to the members to say, if you're going to be a good member of the United Nations if you want it to work. And I think that's the important part of civil society is to say we want an input to make it work. And we want to make certain that the people representing us at our government level help make it work. What are some of the issues you think that the United Nations has at the moment and how do you think they could be rectified? Well, what we hear mainly is, is about um, the Security Council. And that's been an issue for the um, United Nations that they haven't been able to change the structure. Um, um, so that there are five nations, the big nations after the Second World War, that said we're going to be the permanent people on the um, United Nations Security Council and we're going to have the power of veto. So often things can't be done or not done because of the veto of those five. So that there are people that and very strong pushes to change the actual structure of the Security Council to make it work better. And fair enough. I mean, if the likes of Britain and France can have a, a seat with populations of, you know, 60-odd million, like, that's ridiculous. That's less than, you know, 10% of the world. And why can't we have, when I say we, I mean the global community. I mean, I think we should have a... I think we should have a seat. Uh, there should be a global community or a global citizenship with a seat there. Well, th there are there are kind of p uh, countries as members that that get that get voted on, but the real problem is that the Security Council with those five with the power of veto will not let go, mm. and that's something that over time we may be able to change. But there's a, but you don't because. One part of the United Nations isn't working well, you don't write off the whole lot. And, 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 that's, the, and, and that's the issues. Um, Australia, at the start of the United Nations, played a very important role. We were there as the, one of the most active countries to get the United Nations going. Um, the United Nations, in actual fact, Australia stood up for the smaller countries to try and not have that structure, but got defeated. At least they knew that we stood for that. 
uh, the, the real concern we now have as kind of civil society, someone supporting the United Nations, is, is that are we meeting our obligations under Universal Declaration of Human Rights, under our um, meeting our different covenants uh, that, that we've signed as declarations for the treatment of uh, refugees and asylum seekers. And the point is, do we morally meet our obligations rather than try and be uh, smart um, wordsmiths and get around of saying technically we can do this or that rather than the rather than the um, nobler appreciation of what of how we should be treating all um, human beings regardless of where they are born and regardless of what religion they have it came to me I was born a Catholic. For the first 17 years of my life, it was all Catholic. Very strong. Went to brother's school. All of our um, people we met were Catholics. All of our um, social, until you went to university. It came to me after doing a presentation um, in Sumatra, um, there was a senator, a very wise senator, who's a Muslim, and um, he would he would actually go off for his prayers at lunchtime while we were busy having our lunch and reorganising the next section. But by having that kind of time off, he would always come back and be able to reflect better than than we could. And, I, and we came to the conclusion or the enlightenment that our religion is an accident of birth for most people that if I'd have been more born in Sumatra I'd have been Muslim if I'd have born in my days across the road I would have probably been an Anglican so I've now come to the conclusion that um, our religion in many cases is an accident of birth um, and I'd regard myself now more as an eco-spiritualist that we've got to live in um, harmony with, with all people and with with our earth itself. And, and that's why, you know, we're, we're sustainable, what you'd call green. And I think a lot of people who describe themselves as atheists would identify with that as well because I think there is that, um, that innate feeling of, uh, I don't know, attachment to... The, the earth or, you know, just humanity in general, so... It, it, it made it easier. If you're a member of a um, structured religion, it makes it easier. You don't have to think. If you just live by those rules, you're, you're okay. The problem with that, what has happened, I can see that um, a lot of um, people have found... have lost... Like religions have lost the trust of a lot of people. And it's through um, scandal, uh, misuse of the position of powers, um, and 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 basically forgotten. I think the the true attitudes of of what the basis of those religions were were based on, um, and, and power and control has been a very strong aspect. So, uh, what are you working on at the moment? What's going on in? Uh Earth Charter Australia. Australia. Well, Earth Charter Australia, um, we're working under the umbrella of the United Nations Association of Australia. Um, the uh, the important issues that we're looking at now is what we call our global citizenship schools. So we're providing resources to help teachers 
to appreciate the role of a global citizenship and make it easier to get those principles and, and, and understanding of what they are global issues for, 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 for our schools. Um, and, it's, and it's very important that to make, ensure that education is, is more than reading, writing and arithmetic. It is more than that. It's about bringing up responsible citizens. And being a responsible citizen, part of that is being able to read and write and do arithmetic. But it's also being able to live with each other, to acknowledge people are different, and to acknowledge that, that we need to work together to ensure that all of us can be happy. And importantly, something that is very difficult to, to ensure, and that is the principles of peace and security that is often forgotten, that we just take for granted. And I would say it's one of the most important issues that our, that our, we the people, our communities give to our country. And we give peace and security through our cultural capital, our social capital, our sporting capital, our volunteer uh, capital. All those things come together to give us the peace and security. What is working against it are those vested interests who are making inequality so much a factor now in our country, that the rich are getting richer and really they are not um, worried about the poor, the disabled, the elderly and the young. That's how we measure our, our community. Um, do you have uh, any asks of the people listening out there, some of them who may be in Brisbane or Australia or the wider world? Would you like to? Yeah, well, just supporting our teachers and in, 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 in ensuring that those aspects of, of global citizenship and just citizenship are given. And for people over in, in other countries, perhaps, is there a way they could try and incorporate this in schools locally or? It, it's 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 a lot more difficult um, in that um, many schools do have what we call sister schools. Um, in, in in some areas, there's um, there's different ways that we support save the children those kind of um, funds uh, to help. There's humanitarian aid given when there are um, natural disasters, um, but that's one area. The other area that I haven't mentioned yet that we're working on, and so that is the acknowledgement of, a, of Australian peacekeepers. So UN International Day for Peacekeepers is the um, 29th of May. We have a, a um, service and march in Brisbane on the Saturday before to acknowledge our peacekeepers. We, we have had peacekeepers in over 30 different countries and they've been serving to, to, to maintain peace around the world for 70 years. And just think of that. We've had courageous Australians serving to protect peace around the world, and yet they do not get the proper acknowledgement, I believe, from our community. We acknowledge through Anzac Day the courage of our soldiers, but these are the soldiers of today that were the Blue Berets that are there as peacekeepers and peace builders and peacemakers. They're the important people that are going to do the most in our society in the future.
Anything else you'd like to say to the people listening? Or no, I think that's that's one thing. Um, just that we um, have got to be optimistic. We, we can talk about all the failures of the past. Let's just look in the future and let's make it a, a better world from today. And I think that's the one thing we can do. Um, look at ourselves and just say, how can we help someone? It begins with us. Yes. yes. It starts with one. It starts with one. Thanks again to Clem for the conversation. Speaking to him was an absolute pleasure and honour. So Earth Charter Australia are looking for people to help out. So if you're an international relations buff or if you're just interested in looking for an internship, reach out. Head to the show notes at talkoftoday.com for details. And uh, just to reiterate, uh, if you are interested in the global citizenship concepts that I spoke about at the beginning of the podcast, head to www.globalcitizenship.today. Um, and if you are interested in the, um, the productivity Chrome extension that, I've, uh, that I was talking about, um, head to the site, uh, the talk of today's show notes, because it'll be listed there. If you enjoyed the episode and you are enjoying the podcast, please rate and review it on iTunes or whatever podcasting app you are using because it really does help uh, with the rankings and all of that. Uh, and if you want to keep up to date with some of the content, um, go to, well, we've got a Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash talk of today official. We've got an Instagram account. We've got some Twitter stuff. So, um, yeah, head to talktoday.com. Uh, that's where you can find uh, all of the links. And that is all for this episode, folks. Bye-bye.